We're talking about Easter this morning. Easter, Easter, Easter. When is it again? The Friday we will encounter next. Now, if you turn to the very end of John chapter 19, the very end of John chapter 19, verse 41 says this, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. What we're going to cover this morning is the gap between verse 42 and verse 1, is what we're going to have a look at. It's going to be a little bit different this morning. The last time that we took a voyage into church history, I remember it was one hour and 10 minutes, and I think it's still the longest I've ever preached in my life. We're not going to do that this morning. We're going to cover uh, some ground pretty quick, but we're going to have a look at church history because this event that we're about to celebrate, you won't find the specifics of it recorded in your Bible, of how it's supposed to be done, of when it's supposed to be done, of who thought it up. It's actually not in there. This is something that we've inherited as a Christian practice, but it is squarely in, in the box of tradition rather than the box of Scripture. There's some hints about different things in Scripture that Christians over the last two millennia have taken and have run with. But we need to talk about what's happening here. Because inevitably, around the time of Easter, if you are a Christian for any length of time and you get involved in conversations with a spectrum of Christians, this passage of Scripture will present itself. This is from Matthew chapter 12, just these three verses. Let's read them. He answered, Jesus speaking here, a wicked and adulterous generation will ask for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man, that's what Jesus calls himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. And inevitably, this question will present itself. But Friday night and Saturday night is two nights. And Jesus says here, three days and three nights. So was Jesus using more of a metaphor? Because we, as Christians, we celebrate that Jesus died on what day? We celebrate it on a Friday. And we celebrate the resurrection on what day? On Sunday. And so then these questions start unfolding about, well, okay, In Judaism, a day begins at sundown. And we find that way back at the start of Genesis. There was evening, there was morning the first day. So while we consider a day has a morning than an evening, the Hebrew way of looking at things is it's an evening than a morning. Even if we do that, we still have a problem here. doesn't quite work. And then eventually you get people making wonderful charts like this where they talk about, was there a special Sabbath? Because it's a Passover feast. That's what they're getting back to Jerusalem to celebrate is a Passover. So if there's a special Sabbath, what if Jesus actually went into the ground on the Wednesday or on the Thursday? 
Now, we're not going to be having a look in depth at this sort of stuff this morning. Go home and read about it. It's fascinating. And there is an incredibly strong case that this is exactly what happened, that the tradition we've inherited is not the early way that Christians practiced it. And we're going to talk about how we've ended up with that this morning. But you need to learn this word. There will be a spelling test next Sunday morning. There won't be a spelling test. But seriously, have a go at trying to pronounce, particularly the second one, quartodecimanism. 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 Quartodecimans. Yes. If you remember that at any time this week, you're doing really well. It took me about four days for that to sink in. Quartodecimanism. There we go. Quartodecimanism was an ancient Christian practice. And it basically means that Easter is celebrated on the day of the Passover feast. And that, that anchored on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan, not to be confused with Nisan. That's a Japanese word, and it's a good word, but that's not the word we're using this morning. <laughs> Nisan, one S, here. And so early on in Christianity, let me set some of the stage for you. I went looking for some diagrams to help us understand where Easter came from, all right? So forgive some of the diagrams this morning. They're not mine. They're just ones I happened to cross. When the apostles started spreading out and planting churches across what we now call the ancient Near East, you ended up with five capitals of Christianity. You had five main bishops and they functioned as patriarchs. And they were considered to be equal with each other. And they wrote letters to each other. And they could very easily trace who handed that community of faith to the bishop or to the leader or to the presbyter back to an apostle. And so right here at the top, we have Rome, um, the bishop of Rome at the far left. Then we have Constantinople, um, which before it was called Constantinople was called Istanbul. That's right, there's a song about that. Um, Then we have Alexandria, then we have Antioch, then we have Jerusalem. That's the way those are listed. And those five churches, out of them is more missionary exercise to plant other churches. But here is the big thing about the way these churches work. So here we have them pictured a bit differently. Jerusalem, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople. And you can see the different kinds of churches they then go and place. So over here, if my laser works, this circle here is written in the middle of it, Coptic. That is the Egyptian Orthodox Church that has been suffering so much in the last few years. That's where they come from. They come out of the Alexandrian tradition. So we look at what's going on in Syria. Here is where the Syrian church comes from. But you'll see here it's pictured where it has west and it has east. When we look at the geography of where Christianity spread, there was a language issue. And the language was Greek speaking and Latin speaking. And if you were a Latin speaker, if you were more of a Gentile in that way, if you were, were someone who was going to be educated and trained in Latin, in English, how many tenses do we have, by the way? We have past tense, present tense, And future tense. In Greek, you have five. In Latin, you have at least seven, depending on who your instructor is. Okay, so if you are educated in Latin, you're you're going to have a difficult time cross-communicating and writing with people who write in Greek. We have an easy time translating 
text these days. It didn't exist two millennia ago. So you end up with a language split. Churches that are Latin-speaking talk to Latin-speaking churches. Churches that are Greek-speaking operate with Greek-speaking churches. The Latin churches become known as the West. The Greek-speaking churches become known as the East. We talk about Western culture today and Eastern culture. This is where the term Western culture comes from. 2,000 years ago, it simply meant Latin speaking. But this divide in Christianity means that the practices which they have, they kind of don't cross-pollinate for a long period of time. So we see these churches operating largely independent of one another. And if you have a King James, you will have this phrase in your Bible. Acts chapter 18, verse 21 says this, But Paul bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will, and he sailed from Ephesus. If you have an NIV, you do not have the phrase, keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. So with that language split that we saw happening, there was also a split as to the documents which each church operated under. So let's get a little bit technical just for a moment. The King James Bible was based on something called the Textus Receptus or the Masoretic Text. And that collection of documents ended up with this phrase in it. Okay, Other ancient collections of documents, equally old, equally trustworthy, didn't have that phrase. There's a whole lot of phrases like that in the Bible. The majority of them are only tiny little words here and there. They don't influence the theology and the doctrine of Scripture. This one is a bit peculiar because the the church, which there was only one for the first kind of thousand years, they all believed that they were of the one body. They argued over this very early because for some of them, they said, if Paul is racing to get back to Jerusalem because he is celebrating something around the Passover... And if we know that Paul was not wanting to celebrate the Passover, then surely Paul has to be celebrating Easter on the date of the Passover. That must be the perfect date for it to happen. And so you end up with groups of churches, these ancient, um, we would call them ancient, but at that time, groups of people who were wanting to be passionate about following Jesus They were wanting to adore him. They were wanting to get things right. They were wanting to be obedient. And they said, we have to celebrate the death and the resurrection of the Lord so that it coincides with Passover. We have to do that. And that became their practice and their tradition. You have other groups of Christians where that same impetus from the the text of Scripture itself is not there. And so it erupts. A church historian Um, or this, I can give you a copy of some stuff later that talks about why there is differences in the text. But let's jump into this. Eusebius, really cool guy. Look up Eusebius one time. He's really cool. Eusebius was a church historian. And he writes about very early on in church history, the text is really small because I don't expect you to keep up with me. I'm just going to read it through, okay? I can give you a copy of it later if you want. Around about the year 160, You have bishops or church leaders or pastors, whatever word we use for them. Um, You have church leaders who the church was handed to them by someone who had the church handed to them by someone who had the church handed to them by an apostle. 
you are only two or three generations out from apostolic leadership of the church. And they get together. So let me read to you a short piece of history about what happened. This is your history. This is how Christians interacted with each other in around about the year 160 when it came to this issue of how do we do Easter. A question of no small importance arose at that time. For the parishes of all Asia, as from an older tradition, held that the 14th day of the moon, on which day the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should be observed as the feast of the Saviour's Passover. It was therefore necessary to end their fast on that day. Fasting leading up to Easter was already normal. Whatever day of the week it should happen to be. But it was not the custom of the churches in the rest of the world to end it at this time as they observed the practice which from apostolic tradition had prevailed to the present time of terminating the fast on no other day than on that of the resurrection of our Saviour. So some people stop fasting on the day of crucifixion. Some people stop fasting on the day of resurrection. This is how it begins. Synods, which is kind of like uh, an upper echelon church meeting, and assemblies of bishops were held on this account, and all with one consent through mutual correspondence drew up an ecclesiastical decree. In other words, a decree to go out to all the church that the mystery of the resurrection of the Lord should be celebrated on no other but the Lord's day. So they agree we're going to celebrate the resurrection on the Lord's day, on a Sunday regardless of the day of the month, and that we should observe the close of the Passion Fast or the Paschal Fast on this day only. So everyone's fasting till Sunday. Clear? Cool? You want to, how traditional you want to be? There is still extant a writing of those who were then assembled in Palestine. So in other words, the writing of, of how that happened still existed at the time. And there is also another writing of those who were assembled at Rome to consider the same question, uh, which bears the name of a bunch of these other guys who were there. But it says this, um, the bishop of the church at Corinth and a great many others uttered the same opinion and judgment and cast the same vote. They voted on it. And that which has been given above was their unanimous decision. But... We have a church meeting. We have all these bishops get together. They decide from now on, we are all going to finish our fast on a Sunday, even though the 14th day of the month of Nisan shifts around. We're going to finish our fast on a Sunday. But the bishops of Asia, led by Polycrates, which is a cool name, decided to hold on to the old custom handed down to them. He himself, in a letter which he addressed to Victor, who was the Bishop of Rome, he addressed it to Victor and the Church of Rome, set forth in the following words the tradition which had come down to him. So these now are the words of one of the bishops of Asia, of Polycrates, to do with Easter. And he says this, We observe the exact day, neither adding nor taking away. For in Asia also great lights have fallen asleep. In other words, great church leaders, which shall rise again on the day of the Lord's coming, when he shall come with glory from heaven and shall seek out all the saints. Among these are Philip, one of the 12 apostles who fell asleep in Hierapolis, and his two aged virgin daughters, and another daughter who lived in the Holy Spirit and now rests at Ephesus. And moreover, John, who was both a witness and a teacher, who reclined upon the bosom of the Lord and being a priest, wore the sacerdotal plate. 
He fell asleep at Ephesus and Polycarp in Smyrna, who was a bishop and martyr, and Thracius, bishop and martyr from Eumenia, who fell asleep in Smyrna. Why need I mention the bishop and martyr Sigaris, who fell asleep at Laodicea, or the blessed Papyrus, or Melito the eunuch, who lived altogether in the Holy Spirit and who lies in Sardis, awaiting the episcopate from heaven when he shall rise from the dead? All these observed the 14th day of the Passover, according to the gospel deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And I also, Polycrates, the least of you all, do according to the, to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have closely followed. For seven of my relatives were bishops, and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observed the day when the people put away the leaven, Passover feast. I Therefore, brethren who have lived 65 years in the Lord and have met with the brethren throughout the world and have gone through every holy scripture and not affrighted by terrifying words. For those greater than I have said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Pretty full on, isn't it? Yeah. Christians aren't like that now. No. He writes then of all the bishops who were present with him and thought as he did. His words are as follows. I could mention the bishops who were present, whom I summoned at your desire, whose names, should I write them, would constitute a great multitude. And they, beholding my littleness, gave their consent to the letter, knowing that I did not bear my gray hairs in vain, but had always governed my life by the Lord Jesus. And here's where it gets really intense. Then the Bishop of Rome responds. Now, at this point in history, the Bishop of Rome was regarded as the big brother of the five patriarchs. The Bishop of Rome at this point in time was not the political figure that we see today or that we see even three or 400 years later. Victor, who presided over the church at Rome, immediately attempted to cut off from the common unity, the parishes of all Asia with the churches that agreed with them as heterodox. In other words, they have departed from the right way of thinking. And he wrote letters and declared all the brethren there wholly excommunicate. In other words, the Bishop of Rome said, you are all now cut off from salvation. We cut you out of the church like we would cut out a festering wound. But this did not please all the bishops. (laughs) See, church history is fascinating. This did not please all the bishops. And they besought him to consider the things of peace and of neighborly unity and love. Words of theirs are extant, sharply rebuking Victor. Yeah. Among them was Irenaeus. I love Irenaeus. Writes amazing stuff. You can still get a whole lot of stuff that Irenaeus wrote, by the way. Among them was Irenaeus, who sending letters in the name of the brethren in Gaul, or today France, for those of you that read Asterix comics, the brethren in Gaul over whom he presided, and have a look at how Irenaeus responds to this. We have some lessons to learn from our own history this morning. Irenaeus responds, And he sent letters maintaining that the mystery of the resurrection of the Lord should be observed only on the Lord's day, i.e. on a Sunday, because that was the day that Jesus was resurrected. He fittingly admonishes Victor that he should not cut off whole churches of God, which observed the tradition of an ancient 
custom. And after many other words, he proceeds as follows. Here is Irenaeus' words. The controversy is not only concerning the day, but also concerning the very manner of the fast. For some think they should fast one day, others two, yet others more. Some, moreover, count their day as consisting of 40-hour day, a 40-hour day and night. And this variety in its observance has not originated in our time, but long before in that of our ancestors. It is likely that they did not hold to strict accuracy and thus formed a custom for their posterity, the people coming after them, according to their own simplicity and peculiar mode. Yet all of these lived nonetheless in peace, that we also live in peace with one another. And the disagreement in regard to the fast confirms the agreement in the faith. In other words, because they really belong to Jesus, they put up with each other. The fact that they put up with each other shows they belong to Jesus. He adds to this the following account, which I may properly insert. Among these were the presbyters before Sota, who presided over the church which you now rule. In other words, the church of Rome. We mean Anicetus and Pius and Hygienus and Telosphorus and Zeistus. They neither observed it themselves nor did they permit those after them to do so. In other words, these bishops did not observe a particular fast. They did not permit those coming after them to observe this fast. And yet, though not observing it, they were nonetheless at peace with those who came to them from the parishes in which it was observed, although this observance was more opposed to those who did not observe it. They put up with each other. But none were ever cast out on account of this form. But the presbyters before you, as he writes to Victor, the presbyters before thee who did not observe it, sent the Eucharist, sent communion to those of other parishes who observed it. In other words, you know what? They were observing Easter on a different day. And you know what? Even if the bishop did not observe it on that day, they still took the elements and they sent them to the people who did. What a powerful statement. When the blessed Polycarp was at Rome in the time of Anicetus and they disagreed a little about certain other things, they immediately made peace with one another, not caring to quarrel over this matter. For neither could Anicetus persuade Polycarp not to observe what he had always observed with John, the disciple of our Lord, and the other apostles with whom he had associated. Neither could Polycarp persuade Anicetus to observe it as he said that he ought to follow the customs of the presbyters that had preceded him. But though matters were in this shape, they communed together. And Anicetus conceded the administration of the Eucharist in the church to Polycarp, manifestly as a mark of respect. And they parted from each other in peace, both those who observed and those who did not, maintaining the peace of the whole church. Thus Irenaeus, who truly was well-named, became a peacemaker in this matter, exhorting and negotiating in this way in behalf of the peace of the churches. And he conferred by letter about this mooted question, not only with Victor, but also with most of the other rulers of the churches. So a bishop turns up, they start arguing because they do Easter differently, and they shut their argument down straight away because the peace of God's people is more important. And then one of them says, you know what? Can you please lead communion in my church? 
all about the year 160 AD, when all arguments in Christianity finished. (laughs) Then Constantine comes along. So at this point in time, up to this point, okay, Christians have a variety of practices when it comes to celebrating Easter. Depending on what day of the year it is, it, it seems to happen around the time of Passover. And then Constantine comes along, who is a Roman general and a very, very, very good pagan. Okay? And Constantine has a dream where he actually takes the name of Christ and puts it on his shield and goes out to war and becomes a general who, who then rules over all the other generals, becomes the emperor. And so he wakes up from the dream. He goes through this extraordinary story. And for the rest of his life, he is an incredibly confused man because he grew up a pagan, but he had a radical, genuine encounter with Jesus Christ. And he wants to be obedient to Christ. But at the same time, we see that he still keeps giving money to these other pagan temples. He's a very confused man. And you can see he's trying hard and getting mixed up in a bunch of stuff. But Constantine, now the emperor, in around about the year 325, calls together these Christian leaders, these Christian bishops from around the known world. It's called the First Council of Nicaea. And it goes for a couple of months. And he says to them, what do we believe? Specifically, you've got to talk about who is Jesus, topic number one, because some of you guys are saying slightly different things. We've got to, we got to figure this out. Thing number two, let's actually make sure that we're all reading from the same scriptures. And thing number three, what are we doing with Easter? They were the three big things. Because for, for Constantine, Constantine was not just someone who was trying to follow Jesus. Constantine was also very, very, very anti-Semitic. It means anti-Jewish. He was, he was not interested in looking after Jewish people at all. He was, he was very against them. And as a Roman, that was kind of in his blood to be racist in that way. And so Constantine, when he gets these guys together, sorry, we're reading a little bit more. When Constantine gets them together, Constantine says, what are we going to do with Easter? Because it is not right that some people are fasting on different days. That's not right. It's not orderly enough. You can kind of see Constantine's, Constantine's default setting is order. We're going to make it orderly. We're going to do it properly. And say so we all need to celebrate on the same day. So when the question relative to the sacred festival of Easter arose, it was universally thought that it would be convenient that all should keep the feast on one day. For what could be more beautiful and more desirable than to see this festival through which we receive the hope of immortality celebrated by all with one accord and in the same manner. It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals, to follow the custom or the calculation of the Jews, who had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes and whose minds were blinded. See how you can see that they're not, they're not in love with Judaism. In rejecting their custom, in other words, in rejecting the date of the Passover, we may transmit to our descendants the legitimate mode of celebrating Easter, which we have observed from the time of the Saviour's Passion to the present day according to the day of the week. So the day of the month, they're saying, no, that's a Jewish thing. Let's get rid of that. The day of the week is important. has to be on a Sunday. 
We ought not, therefore, to have anything in common with the Jews, for the Saviour has shown us another way. Our worship follows a more legitimate and more convenient course, the order of the days of the week. And consequently, in unanimously adopting this mode, we desire, dearest brethren, to separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews, for it is truly shameful for us to hear them boast that without their direction, we could not keep this feast." How can they be in the right? They who after the death of their saviour have no longer been led by reason, but by wild violence as their delusion may urge them. They do not possess the truth in this Easter question for in their blindness and repugnance to all improvements, they frequently celebrate two Passovers in the same year. We could not imitate those who are openly in error. How then could we follow these Jews who are most certainly blinded by error? For to celebrate the Passover twice in one year is totally inadmissible. But even if this were not so, it would still be your duty not to tarnish your soul by communications with such wicked people. Thank you, Constantine. So we end up with these practices happening. Um, Thanks to Constantine. We end up with this, this split in the way of thinking. And this turns up in church life today, that we have some who go, you know what? Jesus originally lived and died and was resurrected according to a set of Jewish feasts. Those feasts God himself instituted. And when we, when we see them rightly, it teaches us about the very nature of God. It shows us who Christ is. It illuminates who Christ is. That's, that's one approach. And against these other positions, they go, you know what, that's just some sort of pagan invention. What we find in the early church, apart from just from Constantine, is this thing of going, you know what, if you're going to try and keep one law, you may as well try and keep all the laws, in which case you've denied Christ. If Christ is who he claims to be, then I'm set free from the law of sin and death and I don't have to do it on a particular day of the year. There is actually nothing mandated in the text. So we have these strong arguments, and these erupt in Christianity. These erupt on my Facebook wall, okay? These things of going, we want to obey Christ. We want to be real in our faith. How do we do it? So let's have a look at what Paul says. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this. Formerly, remember he's writing to Gentiles here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Paul is not shy about critiquing Judaizers, which often, well, a couple of times in Scripture, he says of people who have come down from Jerusalem, or the church from James in Jerusalem, who are trying to reintroduce to Gentile Christians Jewish customs. Paul is openly critical of that. Interesting. Romans chapter 14. Paul writes, This one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. 
It's almost like the day, regardless of the day of the week or the day of the month, is irrelevant. Colossians 2 says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And this is very simply our point after everything we've read this morning. The point of Easter is Jesus. He is the point. And you know what? The day of the year is irrelevant. Can we have our thinking illuminated by looking at the customs of Judaism, which God put in place? Absolutely. I encourage you all to go to a Christian Passover celebration at least once in your life because the imagery is meaningful and it helps us to understand Christ. But the point is Christ. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the focal point. This Friday, the focal point is not our tradition. It's not some other church's tradition. It's going, you know what? Let's get together. Let's put up with each other. And in doing so, evidence that Christ is among us, that he is enough, that he is our focus, that he is what we have in common, that Jesus is enough. That's very simply our point this morning. These conversations will come up. You don't need to carry all this information in your head. I certainly can't do that. No one, I think, can do that. But inevitably, you're going to have people go, oh, it's just a pagan tradition. You go, Actually, it's far more complex than that. And if, if you want the cheat's way out, you say, go look it up. Quarternominism. Um, I'll finish this morning by reading to you these words. This was written in a, somewhere between the year 350 and the year 407 by a guy called John Chrysostom. And this is the earliest record that we have, close to the earliest record we have, of, a, uh, of an Easter sermon. And it's like one and a bit paragraphs, okay? This is your history. Let all pious men, so God-fearing men, and all Lovers of God rejoice in the splendor of this feast. Let the wise servants blissfully enter into the joy of their Lord. Let those who have borne the burden of Lent now receive their pay. And those who have toiled since the first hour, let them receive their due reward. Let any who came after the third hour be grateful to join in the feast. Let those who may have come after the sixth, let them not be afraid of being too late for the Lord is gracious and he receives the last even as the first. He gives rest to those who come at the 11th hour as well as to those who have worked since the first. Yes, he has pity on the last and he serves the first. He rewards the one and is generous to the other. He repays the deed and praises the effort. Come, you all enter into the joy of your Lord. You the first and you the last. Receive alike your reward. You rich and you poor, dance together. You sober and you weaklings, celebrate the day. You who have kept the fast and you who have not, rejoice. The table is richly loaded. Enjoy its royal banquet. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. All of you enjoy the banquet of faith. All of you receive the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve over his poverty. 
for the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one weep over his sins, for pardon has shone from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Saviour has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has despoiled Hades by going down into its kingdom. He has angered it by allowing it to taste of his flesh. When Isaiah foresaw all this, he cried out, O Hades, you have been angered by encountering him in the netherworld. Hades is angered because because of frustration. It is angered because it has been mocked. It is angered because it has been destroyed. It is angered because it has been reduced to naught. Hades here is the term for death. It is angered because it is now captive. It seized a body and lo, it discovered God. It seized earth and behold, it encountered heaven. It seized the visible and was overcome by the invisible. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and life is freed. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. For Christ being risen from the dead has become the leader and reviver of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we say thank you. You are the conqueror. You are the deliverer. And where we have gotten sidetracked by by the other stuff around this celebration, by the day of the week or the day of the month, we, we repent that we have misplaced you as the focus of our energy and our thinking and obedience to you as the thing that we're supposed to be driven towards. Lord Jesus, you are enough. I pray that we would walk in the footsteps of those that have come before us, that we would so seek to love you and to love one another, that you would help us to reach past our disagreements Help us to disagree passionately and yet love one another. Lord Jesus, these next few days, would you help us to prepare our hearts and our minds to think and to reflect that it would not, it would not just be going through the motions, but that we would desire to meet with you. Lord Jesus, we say thank you this morning. Amen.